0: Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. You've heard us talk about Citizen for some time now if you've been listening to the podcast for the last couple of weeks. Citizen is amazing. The more that I have been interacting with them, the more and more I am kind of obsessed with their technology. They are there to go out and on behalf of us, the patient, for free, go out and get our medical records so it's consolidated all in one place, making it super easy for us to then be able to send our medical history or medical files to other doctors if we need second opinions, if we end up moving, or if we want to participate in clinical trials. But what Citizen is actually able to do is based on our medical data, they're able to provide us with a matching system to find the clinical trials that we qualify for. You can find out more by visiting citizen.com forward slash SBC clinical trials, and I'll link to it below in the show notes. In today's conversation, I am joined with Abigail, who's going to be moderating a very heartfelt and moving conversation with three husbands Christian, Jimmy, and Andrew, who've all lost their wives to metastatic breast cancer. In today's conversation, we are going to get a snapshot of who these men are, and then also a deep dive into the lives of their wives, as well as understanding that MBC takes more than just our lives. There are so many other losses that come with the breast cancer metastatic diagnosis. Welcome to the conversation. Those of
1: us living with metastatic breast cancer It's easy to forget that our experience, our disease, what is happening to us, what is eventually going to kill us is affecting everybody in our lives. And I think one of the primary relationships that are affected are those uh, partnerships, those romantic relationships, those relationships with people where we have promised to do life um, until our death with this particular person. And while we have husbands um, speaking today about um, losing their wives to NBC, I I think that this is not a gender type situation. Um, It's not incumbent on having a, a legal relationship. It could just be whoever you're going through life with, who is your partner, who is the first person that you turn to when you are making decisions or... Um, living together, having children, et cetera, building a life together. So I don't want anybody to think that, um, if you're not a husband, that this doesn't apply to you because from my perspective, it does. So just from a, um, format perspective today, I'm going to ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves. Uh, then introduce their wonderful wives who have passed. And then I'm going to guide the conversation um, kind of as a um, walking through the process. So diagnosis, living with, and then as they transitioned um, not uh, to be no longer living. Um, And then at the end, we'll talk about legacies and we'll talk about how each of these husbands are continuing the legacy that their wives left behind. And I think you guys will be really, really excited to hear about some of the wonderful things that uh, these guys are doing.
2: Thank you, Abigail. Uh, Honored to be here. My name is Christian Garnett. Um, I'm 35 years old, proud father of Felix, who uh, turned five back in November. Uh, my wife, Emily, died from metastatic breast cancer uh, back in March, end of March 2020. Uh, I'm a design engineer for a decorative lighting company, so I make very fancy lamps and used to go to China about six times a year, but the last year have been uh, home homebound, uh, trying to review samples and stuff via Zoom, which has been a challenge, as everyone's life has been a challenge. but Hopeful to get back to
1: the normal soon. Great. I, I think I've realized that people who come from different perspectives, I've got a couple of engineers in, in my family, will talk about things in a different way. So I think it's good to get an idea of where each of you are coming from for our viewers. So, Andrew, can we come to you next?
3: Sure. Um, Andrew Silver. i um, the father of Noah Silver and the husband of Anya Silver, and uh, I teach down here at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. And Anya and I uh, taught down here for 20 years before she died in 2015.
1: And what subjects, again, do you teach?
3: I teach literature. So right now I'm teaching uh, modern drama, I do American literature, and then I do some a course called Building Community where we go out and interview a lot of folks and that I'll talk a little bit about maybe later on.
1: Wonderful, and uh, he plays a mean guitar too. So uh, don't don't forget that. <laughs> Jimmy, can we come over to you?
4: Yeah, of course. Um, my name is Jimmy Borton. I am best known for being the husband of Melissa Beck Borton. Um, I am a film producer, and I live in Chicago, Illinois.
1: What kind of films would we have seen that you've produced?
4: Uh, the the most recent one was uh, Ginger. A uh, It was a feature-length dark comedy about a 23-year-old who was diagnosed with breast cancer, which is loosely based on me and Melissa's uh, initial experience with with breast cancer.
1: Great. And uh, I had the great experience of getting to see that. um, I think it was 19, 2019. It's been a little while. So uh, it's a wonderful film.
4: Thank you.
0: Turning to you, Christian, can you tell us a little bit about your wife Emily and what made her so magnetic and incredible.
2: My wife Emily uh, was was an attorney. Um, who it's it's funny when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, she told me that she felt like her entire life had been leading up to that moment um, because she she was. Um, Always bizarrely interested in diseases and specifically cancer, like from a very young age. Um, And uh, in in her law career, she was an elder law attorney. So she did wills and trusts and estate law uh, and was a guardian and very involved in guardianships. So when she was diagnosed, she kind of treated her own cancer journey as like. own personal little research case study um, because that was kind of what she did uh, for other people. Um, She helped them get their affairs in order before they died. She helped, before she got her law degree, she worked as a case manager uh, at a a nonprofit who worked with um, patients with HIV. And before that, she worked as a surgical coordinator and, and medical biller for an orthopedic surgeon. So, like, navigating the world of insurance, navigating end-of-life directives and um, hospital appointments and all of the various uh, players that come into play when you have a chronic illness. She was like a pig in shit. Like, as bizarre as it is to say, like, she, she was kind of living her best life. in a a really weird way um not that she was happy about it but um she definitely found uh some purpose in it um as well as in the tremendous amount of advocacy that she did um in the breast cancer community her podcast her blog the, the play that i'll let andrew talk about um she really uh, crammed a lot of life into those two and a half years. Um, really, a, a, I would say for many people would probably consider almost a career's worth of, of work that she managed to get done. Um, so it was, uh, I, I think, she made a really big impact in a very sh- relatively short amount of time, which I think is something you hear about again and again in the embassy community um, because everyone's on the clock. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, she was definitely a force to be reckoned with.
1: She was a competitive swimmer too, wasn't she?
2: Yeah. Competitive in a lot of things, (laughs) (laughs) just a competitive person. Uh, didn't like someone telling her she couldn't do something or shouldn't do something. That was a surefire way to get her to do it. Um, but yeah, she was a swimmer. Um, she ran the New York city marathon, She's uh, an amazing mother, an amazing daughter, uh, incredible wife, just, um, an overall amazing human.
1: I think one of my favorite stories about Emily was uh, when she was taking the bar exam that she made friends <laughs> with the person sitting next to her such that that person was, still was Facebook friends with her years and years after they took the bar exam together. It just, that was Emily.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's peak Emily right there. Uh, Yes. The person she sat next to at the bar exam sent me an email when she died and was like, I know this sounds weird, but I met her at the bar exam and have followed her ever since. (laughs) Like, no, that doesn't sound weird. If you know Emily, that does not sound weird at all.
0: No, not at all. (laughs) Andrew, can you introduce us to your wife, Anya?
3: Yeah, listening to Christian talk, I'm I'm struck by the impossibility of summing up our uh, our wives in this kind of fashion. <laughs> I mean, Emily uh, was just she defied words, you know. Uh, you just mm-hmm. have to to feel that kind of energy. But then the other thing that that really strikes me about it is that um, uh, cancer, and this is probably true for Melissa too, to me, that, that uh, cancer was absolutely transformational in her life and this has to come with a quick caveat that christian said which is that they knew i i know that anya knew that cancer was a gift to her poetry but she mm-hmm. would have turned down that gift and burned all of her poems if she could have spent um another day here um and so it's a strange thing so anya was a, a poet um she had written since she was like in seventh grade she had Written a book or something and moved into poetry and started publishing when she was in uh, college. And when I met her, she was this kind of unflappable force of nature. She, like Emily, uh, uh, but she had a a kind of quiet um, uh, power to her. She would go up. I, I used to act and I would get very jittery before I'd get on stage. And Anya was just cool as a cucumber. She'd get up there on stage and start reading with just this enormous confidence in her work. And she was just had this gift with the sensuality of language uh, in her poems, with turns of phrase and images and metaphors that were just absolutely striking. I don't know where she came up with them. Um, and when uh, she was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer in uh, when she was pregnant with my son, Noah, with our son, um, she, I want to say that there were times when she wanted to give up poetry. That, you know, she was getting mm. rejection letters, uh, she was getting A series of second place finishes In a bunch of different uh, Poetry um, Contests And um, And then I think Cancer gave her what she called Well, she's quoting Emily Dickinson The flood subject for Dickinson That's mortality And uh, it just um, put Her Poetry into another world And um, um i want I want to keep my mind full of brevity. I'm just gonna say I could talk for a long, long time. She is also incredibly kind, incredibly tender, a deeply spiritual person who didn't shy away from very difficult questions, and uh, also the funniest person uh that I'd ever known though I think that uh that there's a tie with Emily Garnett there. <laughs> <laughs> But, but both uh, such, such funny people. And, and um, you know, I, I loved her dealer who we were married for uh, 20, uh, just about 20 years. Yeah.
1: I have to say that Anya's poetry puts the experience of metastatic breast cancer into language that is it, it's it's a heart language to, from from my perspective reading her poetry, and for any of you who are listening and and want to learn more about the experiences of somebody living with this disease, I I, I have bought and given at least a dozen of each of her books to people because it just. just captures so much of the nuance of what it's like to be alive while your body is literally crumbling. Um, So her poetry has been something that has really resonated with me. So her books are on Amazon and I would definitely encourage everybody who's listening to, to consider purchasing her poetry. And of course we'll get to the play, which features some of her poetry as well. And um, she's really had a gift
2: going through emily's books after she died looking at notes that she'd written and and um found a book of anya's poetry that emily had that was very heavily dog-eared um and i i believe we, we have not yet had a memorial service for her because she died literally as COVID blew up and we waited so long that i was like i'm i'm Uh, there's no point in rushing it until I can get all of the hugs that I missed out on the first time around. So we're waiting until everyone's vaccinated and we don't have to worry about it. Um, But she has a bunch of directives (laughs) as we'll get to when we get to that part. But uh, I I think there's at least one poem of Anya's that, that she mentioned as being a possibility for being read at her, at her Memorial.
3: Yeah. So somebody asked uh, what, what, (laughs) books to where to start and um probably her most optimistic book is 93rd name of god which is the first book she wrote and she was still i think she was in remission for part of that book but um uh if if you can cope with the uh darker material i think um i watched you disappear would be if i had to pick one volume of those four volumes which one i would pick which was written from the metastatic experience specifically
2: I believe that's the one that I uh,
3: found. Emily liked that
2: one. Emily did not shy away from dark.
3: <laughs>
0: Jimmy, can we come to you next? And can you tell us about Melissa's life story?
4: Yeah. <clears throat> so Melissa was, I mean, at the end of the day, she was an artist. Um, she I actually met her in film school. We were uh, at Loyola in college together studying film and she was the one person we got partnered up and she'd always, uh, kind of challenge any idea I had of what, what makes great cinema and what tell, how to tell a great story. She always had her own thought and she wouldn't budge from that. And we, we ended up really working together and having kind of a synergy, uh, synergy to our, our work together. But, um, you know, I think, uh, she, we had, she had multiple diagnoses. So when we wrote Ginger, that was shortly after she was diagnosed when she was 23. Um, and that was very early breast uh, stage breast cancer. So most of the time we were told, you know, she's going to be okay. There's nothing really to worry about. And then later when she was uh, 28, um, she was diagnosed metastatic. But throughout that time, she was always trying to help other people in her situation. She wanted she wanted her story to resonate with someone else, especially because when she was 23, when we were both 23, when we were dating, she, um, you know, it was one of those things where we didn't see a lot of people in our situation who were 23 years old, just got out of college, trying to find their first jobs and, you know, get hit with a cancer diagnosis. And so uh, I think for her, it was about giving, using her art to, Help somebody.:
1: hmm. It sounds like a consistent theme throughout all of your wives that they used what they had and they used their strengths in each and very different ways to be able to pass on something of themselves. and I think each of them really ha- has done that. Um, so what I want to go to next is the diagnosis
2: emily was initially diagnosed as stage two her um her primary care doctor during a routine physical found a lump uh said you should get an ultrasound it's probably nothing it's probably assist from breastfeeding had the ultrasound they said "Uh, let's do a mammogram Did the mammogram Uh, let's do a biopsy come back this afternoon at that point when they said come back this afternoon we immediately you know felix was still with us um he was on my lap in the waiting room that whole time, and we said, "Okay, we got to we got to drop the kid off somewhere." Uh, and as soon as we figured out where to drop Felix off, she looked at me and goes, "Okay, take me to CVS. I need pens and a legal pad." They did an MRI and they looked at the right breast, and then they did wanted to look at the left breast, and they completely jumped over the breast bone in between, which was riddled with metastatic um, lesions, um, just because they weren't looking for them. So fortunately, we got a second opinion at uh, Sloan Kettering and and the question in our mind going in was, OK, we're going to meet with the surgeon. It's going to be OK. One boob or two. That was, you know, what, what are we going to take off? Um, so the, the surgeon walks in and goes, hi, I'm Dr. Mora. You know, it's so nice to meet you. You don't really need to see me yet. Or you're going to be talking to my my medical oncologist counterpart. But I just wanted to say hi and leaves. And we're like, wait, what? Uh, and then we get pulled into the office of her oncologist who goes, uh, okay, you know, I just, you know, we're sure. Yeah. We'll talk about surgery possibly, but you know, what we're really more worried about is the, is the lesion on the breastbone and we go, uh, the, the what on the where now she goes, the, the lesion on your, on your breastbone. And that was when her face kind of went, uh, shit. Uh, and that was when she realized that, you know, of course, it's a second opinion. So they don't look at the case file from before. So she had no idea that we had no idea. So she kind of did a, okay, let's, let's back up. Uh, you're stage four, not stage two. Um, and that's when, you know, the rigging in the ears starts and, and everything kind of spins for a few minutes. I think we gave ourselves about a day to kind of wallow. (laughs) Um, And then it was, let's start researching. The hardest part was when we got the initial diagnosis and they said, okay, they didn't even think we need surgery. Um, They were like, yeah, we'll do, we'll do a round of chemo, probably no radiation and, and, you know, wait five years and you'll be able to have another baby. Because we were were at that point trying for a second kid. Emily's first question when they said stage four was, am I going to be able to have another baby? And the doctor was like, no, never. Um, And that was when Emily lost it. Uh, Because that was, I think, the first kind of real grief that we experienced due to the diagnosis. Like that was that was the f- very that was the first loss. More so than the prospect of of losing her breasts, which she was like, eh, I've never really loved them anyway. Losing her fertility was was the really it was the big blow. Um, the loss of giving Felix a sibling, which we really wanted to do, the loss of giving ourselves another child, um. Just the loss of that future really was, I think, the big thing that hit us so hard with the initial metastatic diagnosis.
1: After that first appointment, you talked about the wallowing for a day and then getting to work, and that just is quintessential, Emily, but is is that your way of coping as well?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay all right so that yeah. was
1: aligned
2: <laughs> yeah very much so uh i'm i'm a man of action <laughs> i'm like okay so what are we going to do about it you know like it is what it is we, we can't we don't have a time machine it is what it is what are we going to do about it um which i think as much as emily was like that i think i'm probably more like that so i think i'm sometimes dragged her along in that a little bit, but I th- think she appreciated it. <laughs> um, you know, we, we always, we took our turns with, okay, I'm, I'm going to have my sad day today. Uh, and the other one is going to be sitting here going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get up off the map. Um, but in general, I think we were both pretty much like what's next, you know,
1: and that served you both well in terms of getting to the next medication and getting to the next step. Mm-hmm.
0: Andrew, can you share a little bit more about Anya? I understand that she was diagnosed originally with early stage, and perhaps give us a timeline before it became metastatic.
3: Well, Anya was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer. It's supposed to kill her within. I think the average life expectancy was about two years or so at the time that she was diagnosed. But this was previous to the development of all sorts of things like uh, Herceptin that could extend life for people with inflammatory breast cancer. And so the, the, the sort of reality back then was that if you can live five inflammatory breast cancer, you're in the you're in the clear. And she had lived for five years with inflammatory breast cancer on Herceptin. And so I mean we always felt like we were kind of walking on the thinnest veneer of ice and that any day we could um, sort of be swallowed up. But there was some sense that maybe maybe she had um, managed to slip away from inflammatory breast cancer. She started working out uh, at the gym and started feeling something in her sternum and she thought maybe you know she was doing a lot of sit-ups. And she thought maybe, um, you know, she had strained something. And I guess I'll just say this much for, um, for you know, spouses watching together. Um, it's a really difficult thing as a spouse to both try to calm your loved one um, and then not to live in denial, you know? Um, there were two times where I I tried to calm Anya, tried to reassure Anya, and I was wrong. And the sternum was one, and the day before she died was another. Yeah. And, uh, I I always had the sense that I didn't live in denial, but I couldn't live with full recognition. And so I had to live in this contingent world of maybe what if, you know, maybe what if her septum works, maybe what if she, to to like, slow this down. So uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is that we were in a practice here in Macon, Georgia, which was notorious for waiting. And so we were stuck in a waiting room uh, for two hours, more than two hours. Mm to find out whether she had a recurrence. I remember I was so nervous. I get kind of um, OCD or something sometimes uh, before I acted when I used to do this and then before these huge moments. And I remember trying to like line up my shoes, with was like a board kind of pattern in the the way. I was like lining up my shoes. I was just absolutely freaking out. Um, uh, Just uh, nervous beyond belief. And, but waiting and waiting and waiting, you'd go from the waiting room to another waiting room to the final, you know, uh, sort of antiseptic room where they, they hold you. Everything is cold. Your nerves are shot. Um, and finally, you know, we begged the physician's assistant, just tell us what the deal is. And he said, there's a spot on your sternum. And um, it's hard to describe how to feel. Because Anya was also trying to reassure me that you know when it's in the bones it moves slowest. That's a not a bad place for it to go. So I don't think I had a sense of what stage four was, and I just kept thinking, okay, it's in the bones. We'll just we'll just you know try to contain it there. It's in the sternum. And then the doctor came in and said, maybe this is necrosis from radiation. To uh, well, no, no, that was. No, that was uh, yeah I think that was right. She thought it was necrosis from radiation to the to the breast area, and so we had this like little glimmer of hope there too. Yeah. I clung to that for a few more days. It feels like you climb to the very top of a tree and then the branch is and the next branch is next and then you know by the time you hit the bottom you've just been dazed uh and and um just shaken of of your ability to think at some level, so I was sort of stunned and it. In shock, I think, and I think looking for ways to reassure myself that this didn't mean the end of the line um, for Anya—that it was just another, another phase. And you know, I always, I've always thought, since the first time she was diagnosed, when you're given this horrible news, it feels as though you're like a cat or a wild animal that's been stuck down into this dark sack and you you begin to struggle and 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 you know you try to claw your way out and then this weird thing happens where like all of a sudden you're that same cat and you've normalized the bag and you're like setting up tea in the bag and doing these weird like you're on <laughs> normal you know and so i think something sort of similar happened there too um but i, I don't i don't think i fully understood um I don't think I fully understood what uh, stage four meant to Anya. And I think that Anya was still looking to the metastatic community for reassurance that bone nets were, were controllable. And indeed, they, they, they were for a long time.
0: There is such a fine line between denial and optimism, especially in the role of the caregiver.
3: There's a reason why I calmed all the time. It's because, as anybody knows in the metastatic community, for every one time that you have a progression, there are hundreds of times, like literally sometimes hundreds of times when you think something is wrong, you feel some twinge in your brain and you think I've got brain cancer or you feel an ache in your hip and you think it's gone to your hip. And so, you know, after scan, after scan, you begin to say, well, chances are this is maybe something that is real that might come from a side effect from your medications that are likely really body as well um so yeah it's it's hard it's an impossible thing both to calm and to be realistic
1: i also love the the metaphors of the hit, hitting all the branches on the way down and the the cat in the bag normalizing because we do we all normalize this we're bag, we're bag people now
3: <laughs> yeah it's a with, funny. with
1: a dark sense of humor as well.
4: <laughs> That's
1: right. Jimmy, can we come over to you? Talk about that, that experience of Melissa learning that she was metastatic.
4: Yeah, um, well, mine is very unique because uh, so focusing on the metastatic diagnosis. But she was already sort of out of treatment and because she was so young, um, the hospital that she was getting treatment at was very adamant that she was too young for, uh, for cancer. And if you've seen the movie, that's kind of how it played out was, you know, somebody told her, Oh no, you're too young. We had, she had to wait for scans. Uh, one doctor actually said, you know, you're fine. Don't worry about it. We're not going to do scans because it's not hospital policy, um, which annoyed me, but it also, I, I believed it. Um, so we were in the middle of making a movie and, and Melissa had some stomach pains and went in to uh, get a second opinion at Northwestern and I was actually scouting a location for uh for scenes we were doing, so I wasn't even there. And she just she called me crying as I'm walking out the door saying, you know, it's back. And you know, I was I personally was furious with the doctors who kept saying, Oh, fine, you're fine, and that's that became kind of our mantra to anybody else going through this, that, you know, you got to be your own self-advocate. You know, doctors are great. They don't know everything. Um, You know, from that point on, though, it became, what are we, what are we going to do next? You know, is what's the next treatment? What's the next option? What's the next place to, place to go to make her feel better, you know, but I don't think either of us really were willing to accept that, that it was terminal, that it was you know metastatic, and that there was no real coming back from it. We both had a lot of hope that um, that something would work, because like you said, you know, you you have one scan where things get much worse, and then you have a scan that things get much better, and then you think, who knows? Maybe this is the one. This is the treatment that's going to beat the odds. And that really builds up a lot of, um, at least in my experience, was a lot of anticipatory grief. A lot of feelings of you know hopelessness when and and just lack of control. You know, you, you lose control in these situations and you just have to kind of you can be as proactive as you want, but cancer doesn't really care how hard you work. It it's non-discriminating in, in the sense that it's just gonna keep doing its thing. So for us it became let's make lemons out of lemonade or lemonade out of lemons and try to make the best of it and just never give up. So I think for us, it's kind of the starting point for figuring out what to do next.
1: Was fertility a significant issue for Melissa as well?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, neither of us were really sure we wanted to have kids. So it really wasn't a big factor in our relationship. But um, she had actually had an oophorectomy at some at one point. So yeah, kids were out uh, of the question pretty early. I mean when she was diagnosed early stage at twenty-three, even then they were like, you're gonna have to wait five years and by the time five years passed, she was static, So it was uh it just kind of was off the table from day one.
3: Uh now Anya had, had um a really late miscarriage. Um there were maybe two um ended pregnancies, one of which was, was, was really late. And, and she frankly felt more trauma at the loss of that late pregnancy. I want to say it like 16 weeks, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. it was, it was a very difficult thing. Um, she felt more trauma there than she did at her cancer diagnosis. And the reason was because she had, she was pregnant. Um, okay. when she had the cancer diagnosis, but, um, she, we I think, absolutely would have wanted another child, we thought for a little while while we were in that little window of um, remission that um, maybe we would adopt. Um, and so we tried um, and, and eventually came to, you know, the realization and acceptance that we couldn't have another, another child, but, um, but absolutely, absolutely. That was a loss, a huge yeah. loss. For her.
1: So many, many losses uh, with, with NBC
0: so many losses that are not obvious, right? Like, unless you're going through it, I think when you hear the term breast cancer or metastatic or stage four, you think about surgery, loss of body parts, loss of hair because of chemo. But there's all of these other losses we experience, loss of fertility, loss of control, loss of all of the other symptoms that come with all the treatments that we're on. So I'm really glad that we are having these tough conversations, bringing them to light and also being able to remember Emily, Anya, and Melissa. We are going to be continuing these conversations with Jimmy, Andrew, and Christian over the next couple of days and weeks. So be sure to tune into our podcast to hear updates and they're going to share some excellent resources and information about how they managed self-care and coping while their wives were going through a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. And then as Abigail referenced earlier, our last series will be on the legacies that they are leaving. Thank you all for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you would like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, you can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, Surviving Breast Cancer Org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast
3: Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.